Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. Data collection, dissemination, and storage fuel digital economy. The recent adoption of the U.S.-EU transatlantic data privacy framework shows us how data collection and data transfer policies are being prioritized at a global level. This new agreement will be partnered with other treaties to provide a durable and reliable legal structure for data transfers based on shared values of an individual's privacy and due process while being respectful of sovereign differences. These new rules around data governance will be partnered with guidance in the Budapest Convention on Cybercrime. These are new tools that will bring system safeguards around human rights and rules of law that will be partnered with the Cloud Act of 2018. To walk us through these agreements, I had the pleasure of speaking with Sujit Raman. Sujit is Chief Legal Officer of TRM Labs, a blockchain and Web3 analytics company. He is also a Senior Fellow in the Tech, Law, and Security Program at the American University. From 2017 to 2020, Sujit served as the U.S. Associate Deputy Attorney General with responsibility for data protection, emerging technologies, and cyber-related criminal and national security investigations and prosecutions. Sujit represented the United States in a high-profile negotiation with the United Kingdom, Australia, and the European Union. He also co-led the U.S. delegation to the G6 Interior Ministers Conference in Munich in 2019. Today, we cover these significant international treaties and how these agreements bring new governance models into our digital ecosystem to enable clarity around legal guidance for governments, business, and individuals. I hope you learned as much as I did in today's conversation. Sujit, thank you for joining me today on Explain to Shane. You know I love about everything you do, but you recently wrote a piece called Two Visions of Digital Sovereignty, which captured so much. I have read it probably a dozen times because... It reminds me of like long podcasts where I'm like, I know it's an hour and a half and I don't have to listen to it all at once, but it's hard. But so it's 36 pages. If I think it was the original, I'm not sure where you ended, landed on this. But one of the key things you brought up that was very timely is that we just recently transitioned over to the transatlantic data privacy framework from the previous data bridge data shield. I was a big fan of wanting an umbrella because I like inanimate objects. I mean, let's just stick with the theme. Uh, But so we have some new things going on in this space. So let's, I want to talk about that. And I want to talk about your work um, on the Cloud Act. So let's start with the new, and I don't know what the new acronym is. It's T something, something, something. DPF. Ah, T-D-P-F. Data Privacy Framework. Okay. That doesn't seem so complicated. Yeah. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's great to be here, Shane. Um, you know, it's funny. It, it, it is a little bit of old wine in new bottles, I would say. Um, the actual, you know, framework itself is meant to be a very easy transition from the old privacy shield. And so if you're a company that is certified under the old privacy shield framework, it's really not much of a lift to transition over to the new DPF. Um, And even for companies that are looking to join the new DPF, it's a very similar process to the old privacy shield. You know, you have to certify to certain cybersecurity standards that you protect data in a certain way. Um, You go file paperwork with the Department of Commerce. They are very prompt in in clearing it. And then you're basically in the system. Um, So I think from a, a user point of view, 
it's uh, very similar to the old, you know, the old system. Now, to be sure, and we can talk about this as we go forward, there are some new rules in effect for the U.S. government. Um, and, you know, that was what the whole negotiation was between the EU and the U.S. government was how do we make sure that the issues that were identified in the Schrems II decision are, are addressed? And, you know, there are certain significant amendments or reforms that the intelligence community undertook within the U.S., and then the Department of Justice has issued um, rules that set up a new data privacy court. So those are the two kind of significant changes that the U.S. government made in response to SHRAMS that apparently have satisfied the European Commission, which is why they have now given the United States an adequacy decision as, as of a few weeks ago. So do you believe them? <laughs> well, look, I, I'm, I'm a little bit of a, uh, you know, I can't tell you that I'm, I'm completely neutral on this issue. Shane, as you know, I served many years in the U.S. government. Um, I have always felt that the U.S. system was adequate. Um, you know, the privacy protections that we offer U.S. citizens uh, as well as non-U.S. citizens when it comes to, for instance, searching someone's email um, account. You know, the probable cause standard um, is one of the highest standards known in the law, and it is unknown in other parts of the world. And so when European governments, for example, are accessing the contents of an email account of their own citizens, they're doing it at a much lower standard than we, that is the U.S. government, is when we are searching, you know, uh, content stored with U.S. providers. So I've always felt like the United States has a very adequate, um, so to speak, data privacy uh, system, when, at least when it comes to government access to data. But to be sure, um, I think there have been significant reforms and um, changes that have been made over the last few weeks. And I think the hope is that uh, when all of these issues ultimately go back to the European courts, um, it'll be it'll be cleared. So let's not gloss over that. So what is it that the Europeans are doing that has a lower standard than the U.S.? Can you just walk us through that? Yeah, sure. So maybe I'll start with the U.S. And, and as you know, Shane, obviously the U.S. government and, and you know state and local governments as well are bound by the Fourth Amendment. And so to access the content of someone's, let's say, Gmail or their, you know, uh, other, uh, any other kind of email account that they have, um, typically the, the government has to go seek a warrant based on probable cause. And the probable cause standard um, is a pretty high standard. It's very privacy protective. You know, there's a whole litany of um, uh, sort of aspects that a federal agent uh, and a prosecutor have to satisfy before a neutral judge will sign off on the warrant and allow you uh, access to that account. In Europe, you know, many of these um, uh, societies don't have written constitutions. They don't have a Fourth Amendment requirement. And often the standard for the government to access its own citizens' email uh, contents is much lower um, hmm. than what we have here in the United States. Funny, they don't ever say that out loud. They don't. And, you know, it's often <laughs> a source of frustration, I think, for, you know, uh, American, you know, negotiators, American law enforcement officials, American national security officials, because you get all these criticisms of the American system by the European Court of Justice, which, by the way, is not a court that has any competence on law enforcement or national security issues. It's a commercial court. You get all these criticisms. And yet, you know, you you look at your your analogs uh, in the government in these European governments, and they don't have to meet those very same standards. And so that's why I think for the last several years, there has been a fair amount of frustration uh, on both sides of the Atlantic by law enforcement and national security, you know, folks. But I do think we're, we've made a lot of progress. And, you know, that's what I try to touch upon in the piece, 
is hopefully we can leave a lot of those drama <laughs> behind mm-hmm. us and now move forward in a, in a productive way, which is all the more reason why some of these cybersecurity uh, standards that are potentially being implemented in Europe are, are especially problematic. So uh, there's a couple of things I think happened that got people's attention, and then it got all into the soup in a necessarily, not necessarily a good way, which is Snowden, right? Mm-hmm. So the Snowden happened, and then Cambridge Analytica pulled in a whole commercial element to that. And I feel like poor Meta has been pounded by the Europeans over basically anger over Snowden, candidly, right? So I'm hoping that we are, are pulling out of that tailspin with this new uh, framework. And so I was asking one of the chatbots, you know, what are the difference are on these enforcement mechanisms? And it came back with more robust enforcement mechanisms, including a new, uh, new U.S. enforcement body. And so that, I believe, is the Data Protection Review Court. Is that correct. correct? Okay. Correct. So what does it do? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's so much an enforcement body. What it does do is uh, it's a court essentially within the Justice Department um, where people who have claims, you know, people who want to sort of raise a claim that the U.S. intelligence community has somehow unlawfully or improperly surveilled them, they can essentially appeal to that data privacy court and ask that court to have a look at their at their case. And so what the Data Privacy Court, uh, my, my, my hunch is that it's going to be comprised of formal, former federal judges, you know, uh, reputable, you know, uh, independent type folks. They will actually have security clearances and they'll have the authority to essentially go look at some of the allegations that this third person, presumably a European, has raised and essentially say yes or no. Um, and, you know, there are questions about whether or not those decisions can be appealed in the U.S. Court of Appeals, like in the actual normal U.S. federal, federal court system. But I think what the U.S. government is trying to do here is create some independent means of review without creating this entire, you know, cause of action in federal court that even U.S. citizens don't really have. Right. I mean, we you and I don't really have claims against the U.S. intelligence community to go, um, you know, without anything more to essentially go into federal court and demand that the entire system be brought down. That's essentially what many of the Europeans were asking for in these negotiations. So I think what the the Data Protection Court does is create a little bit of a a reasonable middle ground where, um, you know, non-U.S. persons can raise these claims of intelligence abuses, but in a way that doesn't actually imperil the entire U.S. intelligence apparatus. Interesting. Well, I wish them luck on that. That sounds like if it works, it would be fantastic. The other thing is the adequacy decision, because I feel like that's the European way of saying we, a mother, may I? Like you have to ask some level of permission from them to do what we are currently doing as U.S. corporations or, you know, social media companies. So do I have that wrong on the adequacy decision? Well, you're absolutely right, Shane. And I think, you know, the the very idea that uh, a European body will be passing on the adequacy of foreign uh, entities it is very problematic for a lot of people. And one of the reasons why it's problematic is that often the analysis is simply incorrect. Um, you know, if you look at the Court of Justice's evaluation of the prior adequacy decision when they were deciding Schrems II, you know, much of the characterization of U.S. US surveillance law was simply incorrect. It was simply wrong because um, they just weren't looking at the right materials or they willfully didn't want to look at the right materials. And so that whole process is fraught with misunderstanding, with, you know, people just sort of getting the analysis completely incorrect. Um, 
But for better or for worse, we're moving into a world in which that type of adequacy analysis is becoming very common around the world now, right? Um, you know, it's not actually not just the Europeans now. Um, many other legal regimes require uh, companies or other individuals to essentially make a decision about whether or not where they're transferring data, if that um, if that country adequately protects uh, privacy. So for better or for worse, I think those are the kinds of analyses that we're going to have to to do going forward. I think what most people in industry want is just a clear cr set of criteria, right? Because otherwise you're right. just shooting in the dark. You have no idea what you're trying to do. At least now, hopefully, we'll have a sense of what that what that adequacy decision should look like so that you can make your own decisions internally. So let's move to data localization and the challenges that we're seeing globally, because you've done a lot of work on this. And actually, let's take a step back and let's talk about the importance of the Cloud Act a couple of years ago, because that was a game changer. And then we're seeing parts of that kind of get challenged with this data localization idea. Sure. I mean, the Cloud Act... Um you know, had basically two parts, and, and I'm sure I'm sure your listeners are, are aware with most of it, but basically, you know, the first part was to reverse the Second Circuit's decision in the Microsoft case. And you'll recall that was the case where um, Microsoft had been subpoenaed uh, for uh, essentially certain uh, information relating to one of its users. Um, it was part of a, an investigation, a federal criminal investigation, Microsoft uh, moved to quash the, the process, saying that the data was stored outside of the United States. It was stored in Ireland, as it turned out. Um, and Microsoft's view was that, well, the U.S. government doesn't have jurisdiction over Microsoft servers outside of the United States. That issue was very deeply contested. The Second Circuit ruled against the U.S. government. The U.S. government went to the Supreme Court, uh, and the case was argued in the Supreme Court. In fact, I, I worked on the briefing in that case uh, on, on behalf of the U.S., and in the middle of all of that, uh, we negotiated the Cloud Act to essentially resolve that issue. And what the Cloud Act did, at least in its first provision, was to essentially reverse the Second Circuit's decision in, in that underlying litigation. And to say, basically, so long as uh, a company is subject to U.S. jurisdiction, um, it is subject to legal process as long as that data is in its possession, custody, or control. So even if the data is stored outside of the United States, if that company is subject to U.S. jurisdiction, then the data um, needs to be produced, right? And so that's a, a legislative clarification of actually pretty longstanding law. So that's the first part of the Cloud Act. The second part of the Cloud Act is a little bit more forward-looking, and what it does is allow the U.S. government to engage in negotiations with other governments to form executive uh, agreements wherein you can directly serve process on uh, foreign uh, service providers. So to give you a concrete example, in the United Kingdom, they have a lot of investigations that involve, you know, emails on Google or Microsoft or Amazon or whoever else. Historically, because the United States has a blocking statute, they, those uh, tech companies could not be served directly with legal process abroad, Right. Because uh, it would be illegal for the U.S. company to produce data to a foreign government um, uh, directly. And so what the Cloud Act does is if the U.S. government and that other government uh, form an executive agreement and they meet various very important privacy standards and civil liberty standards and so on and so forth, that lifts the gate. The blocking statute is lifted so that the foreign government can directly serve the U.S. company 
with legal process. And so, you know, the United Kingdom and Australia both have now negotiated Cloud Act agreements with the, U- with the U.S. government. And what that means is now the U- U.K. government, for instance, can directly serve Google in the U.K. for evidence involving a U.K. crime. They don't have to go through the MLAT process or some other burdensome uh, procedure. And the goal here is to ensure that, you know, law enforcement gets the evidence, the digital evidence that they need in a timely way, but without in any way sacrificing civil liberties or due process or individual individual rights. Thank you. That was so helpful. I remember when it passed, having, just having to be in a place where some people that were involved with it were there, and they were all really happy. And I was like, something is about to break. <laughs> right? you know, and then I was like, how did they, and your whole point about it being a legislative clarification, which we need that on so many things, but it was so important for this to happen, to move forward. Yeah. And it was, you know, it was a fascinating time because you, as you say, the tech industry was actually very supportive of the Cloud Act because they ultimately just didn't want to be stuck in the middle, right? Right. They have this conflict of law situation. They just wanted it to get resolved. Um, You had law enforcement was obviously very excited about it because, you know, a lot of our partners around the world um, could not get access to the evidence that they needed because they had to go through this burdensome MLAT process, whereas the Cloud Act would, would would lift the gates. Um, and also, I mean, candidly for victims, right? Um, you know, for people who are the victim of crime, it's incredibly frustrating when your home government can't investigate the crime because all the evidence is stored abroad and there's no easy way to get to the to the to the, the wrongdoer. So, you know, net net, I think it's it's overall been positive, but um, you know, we did see a lot of pushback, and part of the pushback that we were seeing were from certain European governments in particular that saw the Cloud Act as essentially the U.S. surveillance state run amok. Um, and they were using the Cloud Act as an excuse to bolster their own domestic cloud service providers, right? The argument was these U.S. providers are tainted because they're essentially just, you know, passing information, including European person information to the U.S. government willy-nilly. So you need to start storing uh, your data with European CSPs. Um, and as I say in the piece, that's actually just a mischaracterization of the Cloud Act, but there's a deep commercial motivation for why certain policymakers and certain governments are actually spreading misinformation about what the Cloud Act really means. And a CSP is a cloud service provider, correct? Correct. Correct. Okay. Just making sure. I was looking for an article I read, I'll have to just go by memory here, that um, it was actually an Indian paper talking about, this goes to the data localization challenge of you take a picture with your iPhone, but you might use Google Photos, and then you send it to somebody who is a Samsung user who may be in, like, Asia, and then they put it on their Lenovo computer, which may be going to an Alibaba cloud. And they're like, how many different entities would you might have to use? You know, like if you wanted to do something like not have that be that picture be out there, like, you know, so which goes to the whole idea of being able to localize data. Where are we headed on that? And is it a, is there any reality to this or like how do we start to parse this so it works in this digital global economy? Yeah, it's it's a great question, and and that's a little bit of what I try to touch upon in the article that you that you referenced, Shane, because you know historically there have been these two visions of digital sovereignty. One is this idea of the free flow of data across borders, not only for commercial reasons, for trade, for innovation, but also for law enforcement and national security purposes. And you know the idea is because in a globalized economy you've got data stored all around the world. That's actually beneficial, right? There's a lot of benefits from doing that. Um, And so you need to create mechanisms to promote that free flow of data, but in a way that also protects privacy and doesn't, uh, you know, unduly impact individuals in a a negative way. The alternative vision 
um, is one that sort of historically has been associated with authoritarian regimes, although I don't want to overstate that because India, Brazil, you know, other U.S. allies have also kind of flirted with this concept. But it's a much more territorial idea, right? It's that data concerning individuals or citizens should be stored within a particular territorial locality. It is much more skeptical of cross-border data flows, partly because the concern is that value is would be sent outside the country, right? So a lot of Europeans complain that their personal data is being monetized by U.S. companies, the Googles and the Amazons and so on of the world. Um, and so that it, it, it feels almost like a system, a system of sort of data colonial, colonialism, right? That, you know, all of their kind of natural resources are being extracted and then sent abroad and monetized by foreign companies. And you hear a little bit of that valence in the arguments coming from not only European companies or countries, but also, you know, countries like India, Brazil, uh, South Africa, countries that are essentially U.S. allies, but when it comes to digital governance issues, are surprisingly a little bit aligned with the authoritarian countries, the Russias, the Chinas. And so, you know, we've seen a lot of progress overall, um, but as we enter a more multipolar world, and, you know, a lot of this is the result of, you know, after COVID, after Russia's aggression in Ukraine, um, a lot of countries around the world are looking around and saying, you know, we need to make sure that we're picking the right side. And that's why countries like India, for example, even though they are strong U.S. allies and have actually become much more uh, cooperative on law enforcement issues, for example, you know, they've joined the Quad, which is a, a military um, set of organizations. On the other hand, when it comes to data localization and other issues that are typically associated with Russia's or China, um, they have shown some sympathy for that point of view. Um, you know, just a, a few days ago, there was the conference in South Africa with the BRIC countries um, dealing with financial flows and the idea that you might want to move away from the dollar when it comes to settling certain transactions. You know, these are moves towards a more multipolar world, and we're seeing that in every aspect of international relations, and we're also seeing it when it comes to data governance as, as well. So this past, uh, just at the end of August, we had the UN working on a cybercrime treaty, and it was interesting to, again, to Microsoft's credit, came out and said, well, we're not so sure that this is heading the right direction. I was never sure it was heading the right direction. So any thoughts on kind of, I know it's not, it, it's it, going into its next phase, but what's going on there? Yeah, so that's a great segue, Shane, because, um, you know, I actually worked on that on that issue when I served in the U.S. government. So the United States, the Council of Europe, um, other Western countries, although now the coalition is global, formed what's called the Budapest Convention of Cybercrime. Um, back in 2001 was when it was first entered into effect. And, you know, in the last 20, 22, 23 years, I think uh, around 70 countries around the world, as I said, not only the United States and Europe, but also all around the world, uh, including notably Brazil, which is significant, um, have signed on to the Budapest Convention, which is really an idea of uh, what I referred to earlier, right? To have uh, a global treaty addressing cybercrime, you need to have certain mechanisms in place to share evidence, to make sure that governments, you know, rule of law governments are cooperating and sharing that evidence, um, having access to evidence. It's a very different model than the much more territorial conception where, you know, Russians believe, Russia believes that only Russia should prosecute Russian criminals, 
and that they don't extradite people outside Russia to go, you know, be prosecuted by the U.S. government. Uh, China has a very similar view. You know, it hunts down its citizens who are based outside the United States, who the Chinese government believe have violated U.S. law, and they're far less cooperative if you've violated other law. They, they really don't care as much, right? They're really focused on themselves and their own legal system. And so the, the, the cybercrime uh, treaty that the Russian government and, and the Chinese have supported is a very different view than the Budapest Convention. It is very much aligned with the, the vision that I just uh, described, which is essentially information should be very rigidly uh, kept within borders, that national governments should be empowered to decide whether or not certain information is dangerous to the regime, so to speak. And so the phrase you'll often hear is information security. That's the big phrase that you hear in these cybercrime uh, treaty discussions. And the idea is that the government should be able to protect itself and uh, impede data flows that are dangerous to the government. And that's what they mean by information security. So again, you would think it's almost laughable that the Russian government could show leadership on cybercrime issues, right? I mean, you would sort of think that would be a ridiculous well, idea. Well, they're good at it, so you'd <laughs> well, you think that they'd be. But they're but trying because, to be helpful, but they're not. But because <laughs> right? of this move towards multilateralism that I that I talked about earlier, mm -hmm. that's why you see countries like India. Um, you know, being a little bit ambivalent about it. And you're seeing support among, um, you know, the developing part of the world to support this idea of a Russian cybercrime convention that is different than, you know, an alternative to the Budapest Convention. And so, I mean, this gets wonky very, very quickly. Um, but that's really kind of what's going on here, which I is I think we started there, but yeah, keep going. <laughs> yeah, but, but it's, you know, and, you know, when I served in government, it was always shocking to me that, like, I would go to these meetings up in New York, you know, at the U.N. and talk about the Budapest framework, and our interlocutors would, you know, they'd sort of nod along, they'd right. completely agree, and at the end of the day, they'd say, thanks, we'll get back to you. We want to go look at that. The, the text for the cybercrime convention. And so that's a diplomatic issue, right? right. That's a diplomatic right. issue the U.S. government and its allies need to, need to, do, be, need to do better on. Um, but you're right. I mean, there is actually momentum behind uh, a Russia-sponsored cybercrime convention, which actually just completely defies imagination. It's, it's amazing. So going stay, staying a bit across the pond, uh, we the Digital Markets Act is going in force this week. And to me, I... I want to be kind and say, well, they're just trying to catch up. But I just see the DMA, the Digital Markets Act, and the um, Digital um, Services, Services Act, DSA, Act. yeah, is stop signs. I just see them as like, hold on a minute. We have to catch up. We've got to figure out a way, you know. And then they're, again, doing the mother may I think to us. Like, we're going to tell you how you're going to be able to run these entities going forward. Um, am I – is there some optimism there that I'm missing out on? Well, I mean, th those are fair questions, Shane, I, and I'm not an expert in either one of those legislation. What, what I will say is they are of a piece of what I talk about in the article, which is the EUCS, which is the European you know, Cybersecurity Certification System, um, which is all about bolstering native European businesses, right? I think you're absolutely right that Europe feels like it sort of missed the boat when it comes to digital innovation. And one way to stay relevant is to establish the standards, and that's what they did through GDPR. And by the way, very successfully, <laughs> right? Right. Whatever you, whatever you think we're about all, GDPR. We're all abiding by them now, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And mm -hmm. it's not just us, right? I mean, you've got countries around the world that have essentially enacted GDPR light uh, as their data privacy model. And so, um, you know, I think many European regulators, many, many European policymakers see the success 
of the GDPR play, so to speak. And now they're trying to apply that in other areas as well, including competition and, you know, cybersecurity standards and other types of regulation. I'm very worried about the data sharing and interoperability elements of the DMA, because to me, that seems like a huge hole you create in your security operations for almost every tech company that they are trying to apply it to, which they're calling gatekeepers. In my head, they the Europeans are the gatekeepers. I don't have to my gatekeepers. I have to remember, oh, wait, they, they think, you know, it's the other way around. So, but I do think that the interoperability, knowing how a lot of this technology works, that's that if we have to abide by that is just like saying it's it's a backdoor. It's the reason why I don't believe you can have a backdoor on encryption. Once you have a backdoor, you have a backdoor, right? So telling all these guys they have to interoperate either makes everything lowest common denominator and breaks a lot of really interesting um, features because you are now supposed to be common among them all. It just seems like we're going the wrong direction with all that. Yeah, and, and again, uh, you know, I'm not an expert in that specific area, but I will say you know, trying to regulate your way through innovation is rarely a recipe for success. Um, And, you know, look, we're talking about very interesting technologies like AI, you know, huge implications for the future of the world. And I think we need to have, you know, thoughtful principles about how we deal with data, how we deal with privacy, how we deal with innovation in this area. But when you're trying to do it in a kind of ex-ante, top-down sort of way, You stifle innovation, and you often freeze the legal regime into the technology of the moment, right? And we're seeing that with GDPR. I mean, I you know I work in the blockchain industry um, where there's a lot of open questions about how GDPR applies to a transformative technology like distributed ledger technology, and. You know, everybody wants to do the right thing. What do you thing. do about the right to be forgotten on the blockchain? Yeah. Right? I mean, those are fair questions. Um, and those are the kinds of questions we're thinking about every day. And, you know, we're, we're serious about it. We want to get it right. We want to make sure we're complying with the law. Um, and at the same time, this technology is truly transformative. Um, but, you know, the, the, the danger, even though the GDPR is uh, advertised as being tech neutral, the reality is it's, it was written in a particular moment, has a particular set of conceptions about what data even is um, built into its DNA. And so when you start dealing with technologies that look at data a little bit differently, that store data a little bit differently, that treat privacy a little bit differently, um, when you start talking about encryption and how it interacts with the blockchain, it's actually far more privacy protective than a lot of the the world that we have in front of us today. And yet you're trying to match up with a regulatory framework that doesn't necessarily accommodate that, right? Um, so that's the, I mean, you know, look, these, I think, again, Shane, your, your listeners know these issues very, very well, but that's the danger in being overly prescriptive in, in, in your regulatory approach. And unfortunately, the European approach for a long time has been very prescriptive in a way that, you know, maybe helps explain why um, there's a limited number of uh, European, you know, venture capital firms or European um you know, hyperscalers, right? The innovation and the, the growth has happened in other parts of the world. And that's where the regulation can be counterproductive. So in your new chief legal officer hat, uh, how important is a federal privacy law moving forward to this? Or do you think we still have it w- with contract law? Are we doing okay? Because I feel like we would just need to get on a level set with privacy, but that's my opinion. Yeah, I mean, you know, I had always had a view that... Um, it was sort of surprising that we didn't have a U.S. federal privacy law. And there are well-established, you know, sort of lines in the sand about private cause of action, about, um, 
you know, superseding state uh, laws, et cetera, which unfortunately our legislators have never really been able to, to resolve. Um, we do have a lot of states that have kind of stepped in, right? California is the most obvious, but the number of other states, um, Washington State, you know, Virginia, Utah, that have enacted privacy laws um, that do a lot of really interesting things. I can't tell you that I'm, I'm fully immersed in any of them. Um, the one thing, Shane, that I will say is what has struck me in the last few months, and this is not something I was really aware of till relatively recently, is how the absence of a federal privacy law could impact us from a national security point of view. And the reason I say that is we have a lot of adverse governments out there that try to steal U.S. data. Okay, that's one thing. But actually, a lot of that data is out there for them to purchase. And there's very little limitation on what they're able to buy about U.S. citizens like you and me and insert into their own intelligence databases or, you know, uh, surveillance uh, mechanisms. And so that is something that was not really clear to me until relatively recently. But I think one argument for a federal privacy law is that because the United States is almost actually unique these days in not having uh, a privacy law, it puts us at a disadvantage when foreign governments are essentially hoovering up Right. U.S. person data with very little limitation. Data broker, third-party right. data out there, yeah, with no real guidance. And the problem is right. once it's out, it's out, right? It's, it's out. very hard, yeah. That's I keep right. trying to convince people that it's expensive to hold on to it, and that's, you know, if it is when you were working on the Cloud Act, the cloud felt like infinity, you know, like there was all the space in the world and it was cheap, and now there are, it's not as inexpensive as it used to be, and, you know, maybe we don't need to hold on to every piece of information. We're, we're still right. at that stage where we think that's important um that is a very interesting perspective on on the privacy law because i do think that until we have some sort of ability to play same same in the global well they just had a, a g7 meeting over in tokyo and they said that you had to have a data protection officer in the discussion and i'm like we don't have one you know so right. it was sort of saying okay well everybody gets to come in the room u.s have a good time go to lunch you know right. <laughs> we'll talk to you and let you know what happened in this conversation later so fascinating that's right yeah, and, and so that's why, I mean, I, I do feel like um, to some extent the world has started moving in a certain direction, and it's going to be incumbent upon the United States to to assert leadership, even though it's not necessarily, um, you know, again, the vision that we would endorse. <laughs> but, I love that you said assert and stop. I feel like we're ceding, so yes. That's, agreed. That's very important. Agreed. agreed. Uh, anything on the horizon you want to mention, Tailland here? No, I mean, I think, uh, you know, it's it's just such a fascinating time. Um, you know, in the history of sort of internet governance, Shane, I mean, just with so much going on right now, um, you know, you talk about the war in Europe, and I think that has opened up a lot of eyes, but I'm still surprised that, you know, some of the old ways of thinking about data are still persisting in Europe, including some of these proposed uh, regulations that are really kind of about data localization. It's about, you know, uh, monitoring the citizenship of, you know, who has access to certain kinds of data, um, it's, 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 it's a really surprising turn, in my view, and it's one that actually in the long run could be pretty damaging to cybersecurity, could be pretty damaging to international relations, and also to the growth of, of innovation. Um, and so I guess we'll see what happens, but um, I guess that's, that's, at least for me, that's what I'm monitoring right now is to see where these, where these trends are headed. I feel better knowing you're thinking about it because I'll be back to ask more questions. <laughs> well, it's always great to uh, always great to connect, Shane. Thanks. Thank you for being a guest on Explain to Shane. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.